What is the difference between epidemiology and biostatistics? What do epidemiologists support in a consulting company? How to build a startup with your statistical knowledge? Dr. Paul Arara will answer all these questions for you. Paul holds the position of Vice President, Advanced Epidemiology at Settel, where his primary areas of focus encompass real-world evidence, epidemiological methods, and the application of machine learning to health outcome issues. Additionally, he played a significant role in establishing Lighthouse Outcomes, a specialized consulting firm dedicated to advanced analytics in clinical epidemiology research. Moreover, Paul is an assistant professor within the Division of Epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health in the University of Toronto. His professional background is rooted in epidemiology, with over 15 years of experience leading assessments in both public health and clinical epidemiology. He possesses extensive expertise in evidence synthesis methodologies and has held influential consulting positions, collaborating with domestic, international, public, and private institutions. Let's dive into this episode and see what Paul shared with us. Welcome, Paul, to Biostatistics Podcast. It's really nice to have you with us here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in, bio, uh, I guess, public health issues? Sure. I Well, originally, um, so I did my undergraduate degree in, in microbiology, and uh, I suppose I got interested in, uh, in public health, um, well, uh, I suppose I really got interested in public health because I, I became interested in, in HIV, um, the, the global HIV uh, pandemic. Um, in sort of university, I had the opportunity to visit some some of the research labs at the University of Toronto, and uh, I spent I had some time. I had some uh, uh, ability to spend some time with some grad students who were working in immunology on uh, immune responses to HIV. And it just got me hooked. I don't know. Just being in the lab environment was very exciting. Uh, they were working on mouse models and looking at uh, um, uh, Im- immune responses and immune pathways that are triggered when the HIV virus attacks a T cell. And I don't know. I just found it very, very interesting. So because of that, I started reading uh, scientific journals, uh, scientific articles about HIV, and uh, that spun into uh, more of a global health lens as I progressed in my undergraduate career. Uh, I spent some time after uh, undergraduate, uh, uh, my undergraduate studies, uh, doing some uh, development work uh, in, in India. A colleague of mine had uh, worked at a, a UNICEF water project, and so I had worked with them in, in a rural setting, and um, uh, and and that got me turned on to water and sanitation hygiene projects. And I came back to Toronto, connected with people. Uh, who are working in, in, in global public, cla- public health, and that led me towards the root of epidemiology and, and building up quantitative skills for, for public health. I see. That's very interesting, Ra. How was the UNICEF um, project? Uh, it, it was good. It was, uh, it was certainly eye-opening in the sense that I was living there, so I was staying in a, in a rural um, uh, part of Rajasthan, India. Uh, I was there for just under a year. 
we were just we were working on um, well, it was a combination uh, intervention. So it was it was clean water access, but it was also sanitation and hygiene education programs. So mm -hmm. the government of India was partnering with UNICEF to uh, conduct water and sanitation education camps and build um, uh, water pumps, and uh, just seeing the um, difficulties of being able to implement those programs in in uh, in a rural setting. Uh, where you don't have consistent electricity, literacy is very low. Uh, roads are, you know, here one day, gone the next. It, it was it was very hard to a implement the programs and then b keep track of uh, what was being done. It was very hard to measure progress. Uh, so that was quite interesting to me. Uh, you know, measuring impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I think that did inspire me more to think about the quantitative elements of, of public health. It's one mm -hmm. thing to be an activist, but at the, end day, at the end of the day, you have to be able to measure results so mm -hmm. that you can spend money efficiently. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, so I think that was, that was an interesting takeaway from that experience. Mm -hmm. I see. I guess that's also why you're an um, epidemiologist at the moment. And uh, I think including me, a lot of audience are probably not familiar with what epidemiologists do exactly. So can you uh, explain to us what are the roles do you play in the health research? Sure. You know, it's funny. I think if you had asked me this question in 2019, I would have given you one answer. And then now I feel like it's because of COVID, I mean, everyone know, everyone has an opinion about what an epidemiologist mm -hmm. is. Whereas prior to COVID, you know, very few people in the lay public could tell you what an epidemiologist did. And in fact, as I remember, Johns Hopkins University, the graduate program used to have these t-shirts. Uh, and it was like, you know, graduate program, Johns Hopkins University, and the back would say, no, I'm not a skin doctor, because everyone thought an epidemiologist <laughs> was a dermatologist, you know, those two words, I guess. Right. Similar. Um, so, but because of COVID, of course, people have become very familiar with the uh, epidemiology, with epidemiology and epidemiologists. Uh, and have varying opinions, <laughs> good and bad, about what epidemiologists do. Um, I would say, if I had to summarize it sh in a short way, I would say epidemiologists tend to be very much focused on um, on, on bias. Uh, they're very focused on, if you think about a point estimate and some sort of variance around that, I mean, this is a very naive way of looking at it. The, the epidemiologist is focused on getting the point estimate as close to the truth as possible. And I would argue that uh, biostatisticians, in general, uh, are 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 concerned more about the precision around that point estimate um, and efficiency in 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 estimating that point estimate. So I would say epidemiologists are are principally concerned with study design, bias, uh, and understanding the role that um, uh, time patient characteristics and geography have on either a treatment effect or an interve uh, some intervention effect. So it's about uh, unbiasedly estimating intervention or treatment effects. I, if I had to synthesize it to one sort of sentence, that's what I say, that's what I would, that's how I think of epidemiologists focused on study design issue, issues of bias and how to validly uh, estimate some kind of a treatment or, or intervention effect. Mm, I see. Well, that's a very short introduction, but um, I guess it's very um, accurate as well. But can you explain a little bit more about your current work and what do you do oh, sure. exactly on your job? Yeah. 
Sure, sure, happy to. So uh, I'm a Vice President of Advanced Analytics at Cytel. Uh, I'm based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, Cytel is a global company. It's based in Waltham, Massachusetts. It's a consulting company. It's focused on helping uh, drug and device manufacturers globally produce uh, and generate evidence uh, for their for their products, both for regulatory uh, submission and for payer submission. So when I say regulatory, I'm talking about in the Canadian equivalent would be Health Canada. Uh, in the United States would be FDA. For payer, I'm referring to insurance companies, um, uh, national uh, payer associations like NICE in the UK or Cadith in Canada, uh, where prices, the value of the intervention of the drugs negotiated. And what Cytel does is we help generate the evidence um, both in terms of qualitative and quantitative evidence for drugs and devices that our customers are submitting uh, to regulatory or payer bodies for evaluation. Uh, my specific role as an epidemiologist, as head of, head of the advanced analytics division, is to uh, design and uh, work with the team to design and implement for our customers uh, some very specific types of analyses, which are uh, cutting edge approaches to generate evidence. A lot of the work we do is on real world evidence. Uh, in industry, they tend to call non-randomized studies or observational studies real world evidence, but really it's it's just observational uh, data uh, for, for those in working in academic epidemiology. Um, but we work on externally controlled um, uh, trials. So if, if a customer has a single arm trial, and they want a comparator from real world data, we work on that. Uh, using causal inference uh, frameworks, uh, such as trial emulation, target trial emulation to, um, to conduct head-to-head uh, -head comparisons in real world data, so target trial emulation. Machine learning approaches uh, for either risk prediction or treatment sequence uh, exploration of treatment sequences. So if a, um, a client may have a real world data set or a trial data set, they want to look at predictors of progression or response, uh, or they may want to apply a machine learning approach to better understand the place, the most optimal place to where their product should be used in some treatment pathway. That's another area we work in. And then finally, there are um, indirect treatment comparison analyses that we do where uh, a client uh, is expected to produce some evidence of how their drug or device stacks up against competitors uh, in the market. So uh, there may be a new drug for a specific type of cancer. There are a bunch of published, published studies uh, where um, the efficacy is reported from those trials and either by uh, either by comparison in a in a network of studies or by using the individual patient data, uh, a, a customer may, may a customer may need to provide comparative effectiveness data to a regulator or a payer to demonstrate the uh, added benefit or the added value of their specific drug. So I would say those are the four areas that my team works on. Uh, and what I what I head up at at uh, Cytel. Cytel has a very large software division as well, where they uh, they make software solutions for clinical trial design and analysis. Uh, and there's also a, a strategic consulting division that helps the design of um, of clinical trials and studies for uh, pharma manufacturers. 
I see. Thank you. That's a very detailed introduction. Um, but I, I guess most of the work that your team does is very quantitative. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is what is the difference between what biostatisticians do as CITEL and com compare it with, um, I guess, epidemiology department? Um, I think there's a lot of overlap. Uh, they work very closely hand in hand. So uh, for example, epidemiolog uh, an epidemiologist working on a, a synthetic control arm uh, project where a client has a single arm trial and then there's some real world data that needs to be brought in to serve as an external comparator. The epidemiologist may be involved in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the uh, data, uh, database landscape activity where they lead the search for appropriate data to use in the external control arm. They may also, the epidemiologist may also lead the construction of the, um, of the comparator arm from that data set, applying trial eligibility criteria, harmonizing variables with a trial, uh, looking at prior lines of therapy and ensuring that they're comparable with the trial. And then the, biostatist, uh, the biostatistician, while being involved in those steps too, to some degree, would be more involved in model selection, um, advising on the best weighting approach to use to achieve balance, uh, advising on uh, troubleshooting in case the sample sizes that are ultimately derived at the end of the uh, landscape um, database landscaping exercise are very small, what kind of small sample size approaches, weighting methods, could be used to help balance patient and disease characteristics between the trial arm and the external evidence and the external uh, uh, data set that's being used as a comparator. So I would say while they do work hand in hand, um, they, they, they're sort of responsible for different elements. The epidemiologist more involved in cohort selection, construction and study design, the biostatistician more involved in um, model selection, certainly the analytics, the running of the model, diagnostics, reporting, and then of course, uh, uh, prior to all of that, the SAP and protocol uh, construction. Mm -hmm. um, that's certainly how I see it in the real world evidence division, the real world mm -hmm. uh, advanced analytics division. In the clinical trial space where I don't work, uh, so I'm, I'm definitely not speaking from direct uh, evidence uh, experience, but what I see is the biostatisticians play a more prominent role in the sense that a lot of the trial design uh, is sort of already set up. Um, the, the trials sort of have a more standard uh, design and the biostatisticians are, are very much involved in uh, the analytics and in uh, more advanced um, advanced statistical elements around, um, around adaptive design. If there are some non-standard uh, clinical trial approaches that need to be considered, um, uh, extra, you know, Bayesian borrowing for, for, to, to, uh, increase the power of a, of a trial. If a, if a, if a customer does not have a, a very large sample size. Um, but I, I, I don't have as much visibility on that, but I would say the biostatisticians are, are more involved in, in sort of routine, uh, analytics that a regulatory repair more on the regulatory side that they're, they're they sort of have a standard set of analytics that they want to see from a clinical trial. And so the biostatisticians that work in that space are, um, are, are more geared towards sort of churning out the uh, sort of standard types of analytics outputs 
that the FDA or Health Canada might want to see come out of a clinical trial. I see, that's very clear. So I guess to summarize, would you say epidemiology is more involved in, I guess, data quality and then governance and design? And I guess biostatisticians, they're involved more in analysis and I guess statistical methods part. Yes, definitely. And, you know, biostatisticians, I think, are also very creative people. And they're also, uh, I think, heavily involved in um, in coming up with uh, creative solutions. Uh, one of the things that I, I think you find if you ever end up working in a consulting company is oftentimes your customers are coming to you uh, because there there is not, especially in the real world uh, division, there's not an off the shelf solution that they can apply. They have a very unique problem, whether it's a small sample size or limited access to uh, certain types of patients, or there is a problem uh, where the type of, the, the typical type of model that would be used is not valid because of some uh, um, violation of uh, some statistical assumptions. So biostatisticians play an important role in troubleshooting uh, sort of creative solutions to get around that. Um, so I'd say that's another role that, that biostatisticians play at, in a consulting company. I see. I think I learned a little bit about epidemiologists from the seminar that I went to. I think it's one of our professors at University of Toronto. She went to Acubia as um, a statistician. I think she um, talked a lot about how epidemiologists work with biostatisticians. So I think that that's really cool. Um, and yeah. in your, yeah. So I guess my next question will be in your opinion, what are some of the most pressing public health issues that epidemiology can help address? Because I guess that professor, I brought her, up, brought her up because she talked about so many possible projects and so many fields and so many disease areas. So I think um, in your opinion, what are some of the most important ones? I would say, well, there's two things that immediately come to mind. So, so I would say um, public health issues that epidemiologists could play a role in. <clears throat> I think one is better understanding of, um, of epidemiologic principles, causal inference, uh, understanding study design. Um, you know, I don't think it's the goal for epidemiologists to try to make everyone have a PhD in epidemiology. <clears throat> but I think <clears throat> taking it upon themselves to um, help the public be a better consumer of, uh, of, of evidence, uh, medical evidence, clinical evidence, I think is really important, especially in the post-COVID era. I think during COVID, there was a lot of uncertainty and um, and, uh, and and misunderstanding of what evidence was available. It was a very politically charged climate, still is. Um, and I think epidemiologists have a role to play in helping clarify definitions, helping clarify how evidence is sourced, how causality is, is established, uh, and to be transparent about where there's uncertainty. Um, I think there is sort of a, uh, a tendency for uh, epidemiologists um, to be to sort of want to be seen as experts, and and that's and in some cases they are, but that expertise is 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 limited towards toward in to 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 epidemiologic study design and epidemiologic analyses, and I think it's important that in that area 
where we have expertise, we use that expertise to educate the public so that um, informed, so that people can make informed decisions based on medical evidence. So I think that's one important public health uh, challenge that epidemiologists could have an influence on. Um, I suppose another one, another public health uh, challenge um, would be around, uh, well, I suppose this is not a public health challenge, but it's more of a epidemiological challenge. Uh, it, I would say epidemiologists are, if you look at a typical medical study, it's very, in almost every medical study, random error is, is quantified clearly and described. So it's described as confidence limits, it's described as credible intervals in a patient setting. What is typically not described in a quantitative way um, is the impact of systematic error or systematic bias um, or, or bias. Um, and I think epidemiologists have a role to play in um, expanding the understanding and the use of quantitative bias analysis. That's an area that is becoming increasingly of importance um, particularly as non-randomized evidence is starting to be used in medical decision-making. So I would say epidemiologists should familiarize themselves, become more um, uh, adept at using quantitative bias analysis to quantify and describe transparently uncertainty in evidence. So it's not a public health issue, I think, but it is a epidemiology issue that epidemiologists, I think, have a, have a responsibility to, um, to, to, to strengthen. I see. Then from your experience, how do you, um, I guess, interpret or integrate your epidemiological findings into policy or medical decision making? Well, I think um, it depends on the quality and the size of the study that you're working on. Uh, you know, if, if you've done a, an observational study and you do a naive analysis and you find an association, you know, in very sloppy I think in sloppy uh, scientific writing, you'll find in the conclusions either, you know, uh, well, we should look at interventions to, you know, increase uh, exposure X or decrease exposure X to decrease outcome Y, but, you know, they haven't established um, causality and they haven't uh, in, in those studies clearly established uh, some uh, hierarchy of uh, hierarchy of, uh, of quality of evidence. Um, so, so I think translating epidemiologic studies into policy is not a do one study and uh, now you can translate into policy. I think there are a couple things. One is the quality uh, and the precision of the point estimates needs to be taken into consideration. That's what meta-analysis tend to tend to be. Obviously, if you have a large, well-conducted, randomized controlled trial, that may uh, allow you to make policy recommendations on a solid footing. Oftentimes, we don't have large, randomized, controlled, well-designed, randomized controlled trials, so you have to build up the evidence through a series of observational uh, observational uh, studies or non-randomized studies. But then the other thing is. Um, with respect to your point about translating evidence from epidemiologic studies into policy, you know, you may have good evidence for something that doesn't mean that medical doctors or policymakers are going to uh, take that evidence mm -hmm. and enact the right uh, policies or make uh, or update their prescribing behavior. Um, 
so you know I don't have it off the top of my head, but I mean there have been studies looking at the publication of pivotal trials in let's say cardiovascular medicine. So looking at pivotal trials which have established the superiority of certain um, statins or certain um, uh, certain drugs for uh, cardiovascular risk, and then the delay in time between the publication of those results and the, the change in prescribing pattern uh, for patients who are being treated for those conditions. Uh, and, and you can find studies like this in, in different uh, therapeutic areas. So I think, um, you know, I, I think if you do epidemiologic studies, there, there may be a, uh, there may be a sort of an in, intuitive feeling that, okay, if we have a well-designed observational study, we should immediately be able to translate into policy. That's often not the case. It takes many years. You have to do a lot of convincing for decision makers. There may be lobbying efforts that need to be made. So in absence of a large, really well-designed clinical trial, I think policy changes take, take a long time mm -hmm. um, in the absence of pretty uh, overwhelming evidence. Usually it's a, a more of a, um, how do you say, um, uh, incremental set of changes that happen before, mm -hmm. a, before a, there's a real shift in policy. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, I guess you sort of answered my next question, which I wanted you to maybe discuss some of the challenges of integrating and communicating these findings to the public, um, general mm -hmm. public. Um, so if not, we, we don't talk about this question. Can you discuss the role of uh, statistical softwares that you use in epidemiological research? And sure, which sure. programs do you prefer to use? Sure. Um, so in terms of software, I would say that in the consulting environment tends to be dominated by R and Python. Um, that uh, That's in, in my area, so the real world evidence area. And the reason for that is mostly that the... Um, uh, the evidence that we tend to generate or, or are expected to generate, uh, it's not uh, it's not part of a, a regulatory um, approval where the the um, the data is is uh, clinical trial data. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're generally if you're working with clinical trial data and you're in a regulatory environment, then in that situation, very often the software that's required is SAS. SAS dominates in that space. Part of the reason is the auditability uh, and the guaranteed um, results, I suppose, of, of, uh, of SAS. So um, in a regulatory environment, in a highly structured regulatory environment, um, uh, SAS is expected. You can audit uh, who has accessed the database who has made changes to the code. So there's an auditing line that is associated with SAS, right? That, that you can do with SAS. Uh, there may be a way to do that with R, I don't believe so. Uh, so regulatory agencies expect to see SAS um, used for uh, regulatory analytics and, and filing. Um, that is starting to change. There are groups that are, that are um, validating packages in R to be used for regulatory purposes. In the payer world, so CADIT, NICE, HT, the health technology assessment environment, um, so non-regulatory, uh, non, um, yeah, non, non uh, the payer side, that is much more uh, open, I guess more liberal. So R, uh, R tends to be, R and Excel tend to be used uh, for health economics uh, modeling for pay, the payer environment. Um, 
But as I mentioned, for the regulatory environment, that's starting to change. I mean, R is so widely used in stats and biostats um, that there are groups that are validating the R packages that are commonly used for submission to FDA and Health Canada. Uh, and so there is a group, I forgot the name of it, it might be R for regulatory purposes or something like that, or R for FDA, I, I can't remember. And they're they're involved in a whole process of trying to get FDA to accept uh, uh, analyses and <clears throat> uh, packages submitted in, in R. I will say the other concern that from the regulatory side they have, and the reason why SAS is continuing to uh, dominate is that SAS uh, guarantees the output of their results on their on their sort of base SAS, not, not the beta uh, packages, but uh, in the final versions of their software, the results that come out are sort of guaranteed by the company. So there's a, uh, a liability issue there. Whereas R, I think it says, you know, sort of like user beware, somebody created this package and yes, it's up on a uh, server, but is it 100% correct? Uh, you know, probably, but uh, when you're dealing with a regulatory setting, that's not good enough. Um, so I think there's, so to answer your question, R in a consulting environment, very common. SaaS dominates in the pharma world uh, and in industry generally. Um, Python is becoming a language of uh, choice in the machine learning environment in consulting, mostly because I think it's much more scalable and suitable for uh, machine learning uh, applications. So I, my advice, I suppose, to students would be, or, or, or people who are interested in uh, expanding their uh, software uh, skills, if you're going into a consulting or industry environment, uh, if you're working in a clinical trial, sort of pharma, uh, sort of old school pharma environment, SaaS is uh, a must have, I would say learn both R and Python. I would say have those both under your belt for a consulting environment, mm -hmm. R is heavily used. I see. Well, thank you for the advice. Um, so how do you think, um, Actually, I have a question to ask regarding the, the regulatory part. Yeah. So in my head, when it comes to policy changes, maybe um, not to the like a smaller company side, but to a government side or a national side, um, I would assume regulatory is really important as well. Um, so I'm wondering why, I guess, do we not, like, why do we not have to use a, for example, SAS for these kind of um, studies if that makes sense sorry so why do we not have to use sas for non-regulatory uh study, studies in non-regulatory environment um i guess more like um for example the real world that uh, real world evidence studies that you do it's yeah. most a lot of them are for policy changes or decision making but i mm. assume if it is a higher level or wider range of decision making and policy changes you would um, have some regulatory side of it on um, that set kind of questions, right? So why do we still use R but not some other sort of standardized uh, program main languages? Um, well, usually by the time you arrive to the uh, payer side, so the non-regulatory side, the regulatory stuff's already been settled. So the regulatory oh. side, so for example, <coughs> in Canada, well, actually in the United States, let's say, in the United States, um, when an, a, new, a new drug is submitted for um, FDA approval, um, that the consideration that the FDA has for that uh, drug is whether it is effective and safe. Uh, mm -hmm. That's it. So the, the value in terms of 
the cost of the drug and its comparative effectiveness to its competitors, it's not really consideration. Mm -hmm. If you can show that it's effective and safe, okay, go ahead. Now you're on to the next uh, stage, which is the payer negotiations. Now you have to take that evidence and show how it compares to competitors on the market, what the value is and what the or what the um, burden is to the health system in, in a European setting, for example. <coughs> um, so when you get to the payer setting, the regulatory discussions have already happened. Mm -hmm. And that um, those deliberations and that evidence is usually submitted or at least at the, 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 the HTA reviewer has access to the, those regulatory um, discussions or the or the out outcome of that regulatory uh, uh, meeting. So it's not that um, we don't have the same uh, you, you you know you don't have the same structured analytics that are involved in regulatory. It's just that uh, they already have access to it and you're now moving into a different type of analyses where you're looking at comparative effectiveness against competitors in the market mm -hmm. and the BERT and it's more of a health economics, analysis that happens after that. So th that's that's how I sort of frame it. I see. Thank you. So you're saying that all the regulatory part are already done prior to the study happens. So they're mostly just function as uh, informing people. So this these are the possible information that you can use, but um, yeah. Yeah. If I'm understanding correctly, I, I think I think that's fair. Now, there are some situations where the regulatory stage involves real world evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, and that usually happens in rare diseases, uh, highly specific cancers uh, that have, you know, genetic markers and biomarkers, and it's only available for people who are past a certain line of therapy. Or in, you know, rare diseases, ultra rare diseases, there may be a few patients, a handful of patients in the entire country. <clears throat> and so the comparator arm in that trial, you know, A, there's an ethical issue with randomizing people in those settings. B, the patients themselves don't want to be randomized because if you're, you know, third, fourth line, advanced cancer setting, you don't want to put right. yourself in a situation where someone's going to roll the dice and give you a standard of care or something where, you know, you don't have a, a chance of, mm -hmm. of uh, experiencing um, uh, remission. So, um, so I think um, in, in cases where, re you know, real world evidence is used in, um, is used in, in a regulatory setting. There, it's a much more rigorous set of analyses. Uh, I think the expectation is the data sets are provided in the same format almost that you would expect in a, in a trial. Um, and regulatory grade data basically means that you can trace the individual data set back to the institution, back to the patient, and back to the medical chart. Mm -hmm. So um, whether that's a trial or whether that's observational data, if you have that traceback mechanism available, um, it, it is in a sense regulatory grade. Now it may not be complete. There may be things that are missing and not measured, but it is still regulatory grade. I see. Thank you for the explanation that answered my question. Mm -hmm. And my apologies for the poorly framed question. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, um, the next question is, how do you think that I guess the industry or the consultancy industry will evolve in the coming years? And what are some new developments or innovations you see? I think, um, well, there's two, yeah, two, two or three things I can comment on. One is, um, 
I mean, it depends on the kind of industry you're in. So for example, if you're in an, if you're in a company where you're selling software, I think you're always focused on the software experience, mm-hmm. adding new uh, features that either regulators or payers are asking for. So I think um, I can give an example uh, of network meta-analysis. This is not software related. Um, Network meta-analysis is a type of analysis where uh, you compare the effect of your drug uh, against the published, if it's if it's aggregate data network meta-analysis, against the published treatment effects of your competitors in a network of evidence. And then you see, you make mu- basically multiple comparisons and you see how your drug compares against uh, every other drug that's uh, a competitor in, in a specific setting for a specific disease. Um, the network meta-analysis or in, part of the indirect treatment comparison uh, sort of umbrella was a very novel approach 10, 12 years ago. Um, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, uh, not many network meta-analyses were around. And um, health technology agencies, uh, health technology assessment agencies, um, if you ask, if you tried to submit a network meta-analysis in the late 2000s, probably would have just considered it some supplementary evidence. Okay, this is interesting, but we don't understand it. Uh, you know, what are you showing? What is this Bayesian network meta-analysis? Nobody gets this. Now it's a given. It's an expected part of an HTA submission in many parts of the world. It's certainly in Canada, in uh, in the EU, in the UK, um, and. That was a development over many years, led by academics in Canada, the UK mostly, um, that pushed for the adoption of network meta-analysis as an efficient way to do comparative effectiveness analysis. NICE started adopting it, CADIC started adopting it, and then it became global. Everyone started expecting it. Um, And uh, so over time, it became standard. Now, that took about you know, eight years, 10 years, uh, but it happened. So I think consulting companies, uh, they may have in their toolbox right now, advanced analytics that are, you know, efficient and um, able to make use of disparate types of data, claims and electronic medical records and aggregate data and so on. But if the HTA bodies and the regulatory bodies don't have either the uh, the staff or the appetite for that type of analytics, a customer isn't really going to want to pay for it. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There are people wanted, that want to do exploratory work and so on. But I think a consulting company, um, how they're going to evolve is by looking at where the HDA and regulatory agencies are heading towards uh, in, in terms of what kind of evidence they want to see. So over the last couple of years, real-world evidence has become increasingly on the radar of payers and regulatory bodies, FDA um, uh, um, FDA and NICE. So FDA on the regulatory side, NICE on the payer side in the UK. And the methods involved in the, in the generation of real-world evidence are becoming more front and center because of the requests, the requirements of these bodies for real world evidence. So consulting companies are sort of gearing their offerings towards that. Whereas maybe prior to 2016, before the uh, before a lot of the hoopla around 
uh, real world evidence uh, started coming around, starting coming about, uh, it might have been a, a much more minor part of their offerings. So I think the way consulting companies evolve is a keeping an eye towards what regulators and payers expect to see in their evidence, and number two, um, being at the forefront of developing new methods or applying old methods in novel ways to help regulate regulatory reviewers and pay and HTA reviewers better understand uh, the evidence that's provided to them. A good example of that, as I mentioned previously, is quantitative bias analysis. That's not a, a totally new area that's been around for some time, but it hasn't really been applied very often in health economics outcomes research. That's starting to change. For companies that are uh, primarily involved in software solutions, I think the way that they stay ahead of the curve is by listening to their customers. Um, clients are always looking to get things done faster and better. And I think you know, I don't work on the software side, but from what I can see, I think uh, um, listening, keeping uh, an open ear towards um, ways to make the analytics and the data curation uh, part of real-world evidence generation more efficient. I think that's probably where consulting companies are going to spend their time in the future. I see. That's very insightful. And um, I guess with that being said, for people who want to develop a career in, I'm not sure epidemiology, if I should ask about epidemiology or just healthcare consultancy, but I guess both, just yeah, in general, what advice do you I, want? I have opinions of both. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what other advice do you want to give them? <coughs> Excuse me. That's okay. Cool. Um, yeah, so I would say for, so for consulting, for consulting, I think um, it's, it's if, you're, if you're just starting out, so if you're coming out of undergrad, I would say um, I would say focus on building up as many quantitative skills as you can, um, and then when you get, I mean, the listeners of this podcast are primarily going to be statisticians and biostatisticians. I would say um, you know do as much work as you can with uh, clinical trial data if if possible. Familiarize yourself with the formats that are used, um, the packages that are commonly used. Um, and uh, you know, have more than one software package under your belt. Learn SAS and R, and maybe a bit of Python. And when you go into your first job in a consulting company as a research associate or a uh, research consultant, you know, try to get your hands on as many data-heavy projects as possible, as much quantitative work as possible early on, um, and you know, expect that it's going to be a lot of, you know. Um, uh, maybe a lot of grunt work at the beginning, but I think one thing that would be useful for a, to start off your career in consulting is to really get good at or develop skills in automation, um, both in terms of automating analytics, but also automating uh, output. So for example, you know, get really good at R Markdown, you know, learn how to use Jupyter mm -hmm. Notebooks efficiently. Um, mm -hmm. I think being able to generate output in a cleanly presentable way that's efficient. Um, I think that's a huge, huge benefit starting out early in a consulting career. In terms of a public sector or academic career as a research-oriented epidemiologist or statistician, I think there the goal is similar but a, a different approach. So while yes, you should 
get your hands dirty with as much data analytics as possible, I would say uh, trying to get involved early in, uh, in, in conferences and in academic publications, in, conf in uh, uh, conference proceedings or posters, getting that in early, I think is really, really important. I think in, a, um, in an academic setting, you often have access to data uh, that you would not have. Sorry, you just muted. Sorry, I muted myself. There. Uh, yeah, I think in an academic setting, you may have privileged access to uh, health data that you may not have in a consulting setting. So making really good use of that to get publications out early, mm -hmm. I think might be a good goal to start you down the academic path. Uh, conference uh, abstracts and posters are generally low-hanging fruit, I think, if you work on a summer project or a first project out of first year, I think it's good to be direct with your supervisor or your manager to say, I would love to get an abstract or a poster in X conference in as a, an output of this uh, project. Is that possible? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be first author on it. Just to get your name out there, I think is really good. The other thing is to maybe start up a GitHub page for yourself. Uh, you know, get your get your code, get your packages up there, get little blog posts up there about the work that you're doing. I think having building a bit of a public profile early on in your career is very helpful for an academic um, pathway. Well, thank you. That's definitely very helpful because I think I learned that the hard way okay. <laughs> kind of late yeah. into my school period. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely very helpful. Um, and I guess, thank you for all the advice, but sure. that unfortunately brings up brings us to the last question of this podcast oh, okay. episode. Um, what is one question that you wish I would have asked and how would you have answered it? Or is there anything that you want to share but I haven't asked? Um, that's a great question. That's a great question. Thank I you. think I would say, okay, here, so here's a question I would ask. I would ask maybe your other guests. I mean, yeah, well, you asked me too. What's something you really screwed up? What's something you really messed up in your career, you think? I mean, professionally, not personally. Uh, well, I, I have a lot of those, but I, you know, I'm not going to share that. Um, yeah, what's something you think you really messed up or really screwed up in your professional development or uh, in, 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 a, in a project that you did? And uh, I think that's, that's a good question to ask because, I, honestly, you learn way more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. That's... Mm -hmm. You know, for every um, you know, for every success that you see, a publication or a um, some kind of a, a award, you know, there's ten failures that you don't see uh, from that same person. And it, I think it's more interesting to ask people where their screw ups are. So for me, if I were to answer that question, if you would ask me that, I think maybe maybe one thing I didn't do when I was younger in my academic career um, was maybe branch out um to other learning centers i think i i think i was a little fishbowled you know every academic department is very much a fishbowl it's a little you know it's a little world unto itself and i think as a graduate student it's very easy to think that okay the you know this department at mcmaster this is kind of the world um and only people affiliated with it are kind of worth you spending a lot of time with, I would, I would try to do maybe a, especially if you're in the academic sort of route, I would maybe try to spend some time out of the country, out of Canada. 
maybe go to another academic center. Um, and if you can't either afford to do that or have the opportunity to do that, I think I would, I would maybe try to engage with academics outside of your center in, in a more formal way, write a paper together. Uh, even if you don't have the time to do that, you know, put up a, conduct an interview with an academic that you admire uh, or with a, someone working in industry that you admire. Uh, build out your network. Um, you know, there's that uh, sort of in business jargony saying of your network is your net worth. It, it's true whether it's industry or whether it's academia or whether it's public sector. The people that you know, uh, the network that you have, that's really going to drive the opportunities that you see and the opportunities that are that are put in front of you in a way that staying in the academic fishbowl is never going to do. Because if you're sitting around in your academic fishbowl waiting for an opportunity to come to you, you know, it's not going to happen. You, 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 it, it's, I shouldn't say it's not going to happen, but I would say that it, it's much more likely to happen if you really expanded mm -hmm. your, um, your, your network. So I would say the biggest thing I screwed up was not venturing out outside of my sort of academic division to collaborate more, to publish with external people more, and to develop new projects with people outside of my mm -hmm. department and school, I think that's probably something. If I could do it again, I would I would redo because then I would have been interest, introduced to people working in industry, to people working with methods that I didn't, I was not as familiar with, um, and I think that would have accelerated my a my move into industry, and it probably would have accelerated my interest in starting my own consulting company, mm -hmm. which I eventually did but I think I probably did it about 10 years too late. So, so that would that would be my answer to the question that I, I wish you had asked. Uh, and maybe you'll grill uh, your next guest with that question. I that, that would have been a really good question. Thank you. But I said that was the last question, but from your answer, I actually had more questions for you. So I guess um, you end up being in industry, but you said maybe it will accelerate your switch to industry. So what was the reason why you switch from academia to industry or um yeah i think um well i the academic environment so i left academia in 2015 basically 2015 2016 i started my company in 2016. Mm -hmm. i finished my phd in 2013 and i was working at the public health agency of canada so i was in a public sector academic environment uh, I was doing some teaching. I was still doing academic research and then working at the public health agency mm -hmm. in the population health division. I think the academic, I, I, I did not feel comfortable in an, in an academic environment, partly because I didn't find it to be a meritocracy. Uh, it's very much, uh, it's very culty uh, in, in my opinion. Like it's, it's you know, like, it, well, and it's not, and I'm not knocking academics. It's like, you know, it's like hate the game, don't hate the player. Um, everything is set up to revolve around people. So there are specific kings and queens and everybody else is basically a serf. Uh, you could work very, very hard. You know, let's say you have your masters, you work very, very hard. You're an excellent quantitative person. Uh, you help write grants, you write papers, you're very impactful, you'll be in the same job for 10 years because it doesn't matter because you're not tenure track and you're not going to be a professor and you never will be. Um, that to me seemed completely counterintuitive. It seemed antithetical to my value system. Um, I also felt that um, 
academia was also very slow. Uh, public sector is very, very slow, like, you know, government, it, not all divisions, but the division I was in, I felt was very slow paced. Uh, nobody goes to work in public sector for a faster pace, right? It tends to be pretty slow work, which is not a bad thing. Uh, some people want that. And that's great. I think genuinely, uh, you know, now having said that I have two children now, uh, slower pace is not, would not be the worst thing in the world. Um, but I think the pace was very slow for me and the, where I was in my life at the time that I felt like, uh, you know, if, if I don't make a move now, I'm probably never going to make a move. There's that, there's that thing of golden handcuffs. You know, you have a pension, uh, you have a pretty good salary relative to your colleagues. Um, you know, why rock the boat? Mm -hmm. Um, but then you real, you know, you realize why well, if I don't, leave now and make a, a, a make an attempt at uh you know having my own company or moving to a different sector it's going to be very hard to do so later i think i had an interest in working in industry because i, I like the faster pace mm -hmm. i like the entrepreneurial spirit I, it's very much a meritocracy um i think it's a fair environment i think people work uh, more fairly together. I mean, there's no perfect environment, but it's not as, you know, certainly not as culty because it's a meritocracy. So that all appealed to me. And I said, now I'm at the stage in my life where I can, I can make this move and I should just do it. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's how I made the move. I can still do research. I'm still publishing. I published a paper with Miguel Hernan, who was sort of the godfather, one of the godfathers of causal inference uh, earlier mm. this year. So you can still do very impactful work. And I think part of the bias in academia is that well only you know the best work gets done in academia only or uh, we're, we're the serious ones and in industry that's all you know that's um, that's tainted by money and so but it's nonsense that's absolutely not true everybody works for somebody um you know and if you talk to academics you know they're all working on their gamesmanship on how to apply for grants i mean so everyone's you know trying to work for somebody so i think you can do really impactful very interesting work in industry at a very fast pace and that's really cutting edge uh a lot of the stuff is published a lot of it is not and um you know you you, you so you don't see a lot of that um so yeah so that's how i ended up making the move and uh i, I certainly don't look back and it's, it's not for everyone and uh but but i would say for me it fit really well i see well congratulations that you are at the right space a right place at the right time yeah um, thank you I, I guess I'm also interested in your own consulting company. How did I turn yeah. on? Because you're working at Cytel now. So I guess there's a story behind it. Yeah, yeah, there's a story. So uh, so I started a consulting company with a business partner in 2016 called Lighthouse Outcomes. <coughs> excuse me. We, we <coughs> excuse me. You want to start that one again? So I'm not oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. I can cut it off. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, we started that. I started Lighthouse Outcomes in 2016 with a business partner. Uh, we had actually done our PhDs together, and uh, I had always done some consulting work here and there. You know, took on contracts. You know, mm -hmm. hey, can you do this analysis for me? Can you do that analysis? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure, sure, okay. And at some point, I started having enough contracts that I thought, you know, I might be maybe I might be able to replace my income um, with just contract work. Um, no, obviously there's risks involved in that and so on, but, uh, you know, having a business partner give me the, helped give me the confidence to do that. So I took it on in earnest in 2016. That company uh, incorporated in 2017. We grew it to about eight people in 
2019, by, by 2019, so about four years. Um, and then at, in 2019, we were acquired by Cytel. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lighthouse Outcomes was acquired as part of uh, acquisition of MTech Sciences, which is a, another consulting company that was based in, is based in, well, well, was based in Vancouver. So in 2019, it was acquired. Uh, and we became part of Cytel, so we became, you know, uh, Lighthouse basically as a, as a Cytel company. Uh, they Cytel went on to continue to make additional uh, acquisitions, and sometimes that's how companies grow. They go, they grow by organic growth sales. They also grow by inorganic growth by acquiring other companies. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so yeah, that's that's basically how that uh, that came about. I see. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I I learned a lot. Quite honestly, I would say. And genuinely, I could say, I think I learned more from starting a company, building it out, selling the company, um, you know, being acquired, uh, doing that whole process over over five years. I think I learned more from that process uh, than I than I did from you know doing my PhD. I I really feel the pace of learning the 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 um, the interactions that I had with people, it was an incredible educational opportunity, mm -hmm. just the act of doing, it was terrifying, don't get me wrong, I mean, there's, uh, you know, doing a PhD in many ways is, is a very safe sort of thing, uh, but, you know, starting a company, building it out, uh, th that is a, that is a, uh, it can be a terrifying prospect, but it's very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm very glad I had the opportunity to do it. Well, that's so inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. For sure, my pleasure. Well, I guess, that's all my questions for today. And thank you for being on the Biostatistics podcast. I definitely learned a lot. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks, Jocelyn. I just want to say thank you for having me on and having this podcast. I'm very impressed uh, by, your, uh, by your entrepreneurial spirit. I'm glad you're doing these podcasts. It's really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode.